Our Father, as we recall that you are our creator as well as our savior, and your creation precedes the salvation, we are reminded of how important it is to see scriptures in their sequential development. We pray that you would um, illuminate our hearts tonight, give us a sense of uh, truth, of confidence, of rest, that your word is true and that we can rely upon it and teach us to adhere to it in the course of all the chaos of our everyday lives and in the world in which we live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight will be our time in the Old Testament. Uh, as you can see, the notes that we handed out um, now will be the, where we should have been back at Labor Day, September. Um, <clears throat> that's the beginning of section 5 which will deal with the confrontation with the king, uh, which is uh, going to deal with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And since that's coming, we want to finish tonight resolving the controversy of how we interpret prophecy, whether we're amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Um, I'm going to offer evidences of the premillennial position. And as I do this, I'm going to rely upon something that we covered, or hopefully we've covered it enough, but it's a way of approach. Of remen- I showed this uh, slide back, I guess, a couple of years ago. It's uh, actually taken from um, World War II um, book, uh, a book about World War II and how the... Um, B-50, the B-17s flew into Germany. And, of course, they had to have so many aircraft because so few bombs were being carried on each aircraft. And they would fly in these formations. And it was very, very important that these formations stay in formation. So there's one group up here, the red, the green, and the yellow. Next group, the red, the green, the yellow. One group 26,000 feet, one group 25,000 feet, and one group 24,000 feet. And you pray that the guys up here don't drop on the guys down here, which they did sometimes. And the idea was that the planes are put into such a way that they cover each other. And the technique is still the same even today uh, with ECM, electronic countermeasures, and so on. But the point that we're trying to show is that these aircraft don't go in alone. They're all part of a team, and they have to be in formation. Now, in like fashion, the scriptures give truths that cannot and should not stand alone. They stand in formation. We've covered these truths in the sequence of a framework. Tonight, we're going to make use of that framework because tonight, the evidences for... The premillennial position I'm going to show depends upon other parts of the framework. The Bible is internally self-consistent. And it's self-consistent because God is perfectly rational. We can't comprehend His thinking the way He comprehends His thinking. God's thinking is different than ours. He never has to learn anything. And the act of thinking is creative with him. The act of thinking on our part is not creative. The act of thinking on our part is we think of a plan and then we do the plan. 
God doesn't have to do the plan. He can just think the plan into existence. Um, he has perfect intuition of all facts at all time. We have only a touching uh, awareness of facts within time and space in which we live. Um, God sees the connections between all facts. We see only connections between some facts. So, our limited, finite mind, um, while not God's, does have a rational rationality to it. And we have to understand God has perfect rationality and all of these things that he teaches about himself fit together. Um, so tonight we're going to make a, a, a heavy use of this event, the creation event, what it teaches us about God, man, and nature. So don't think of these as past topics. Think of these as part of a web that fits together. There's a web of events and a web of truths. They all interlock. They cross-connect and so on. So although we have a sequence of revelation, um, this is a, a very integrative um, way that God has, taught, has presented his thinking in history. Well, on page 12 of this appendix to, to part 4, we've said that we want to deal with a resolution of these three views. And we've talked about these three views quite a bit. And we've said that they um, basically have to do with the nature of the kingdom of God. And we've developed a vocabulary so we can think about it. Because the tool of thinking is a vocabulary. You've got to have a vocabulary. And we developed a vocabulary speaking of mortal man and immortal man. And those two words gives us uh, a tools and handles to, to get a grip on things. The issue is whether the kingdom of God shows itself inside mortal history or whether the kingdom of God cannot be contained inside mortal history and basically is a synonym and the same thing it means the eternal state. We've shown the chart on good and evil uh, a number of times. Um, I was recently at a conference in Connecticut over the weekend and uh, the people were very much interested in this particular chart <clears throat> and um, what it shows about good and evil. And that separation that you see on the chart, basically the debate in prophecy is whether this thing really gets started inside mortal history and comes to some sort of fruition or whether all we have is just a, a hint at it in pieces. For example, if you think of the post-millennial view, post-millennialists argue that the kingdom comes in history, but the kingdom that comes in history um, is, is not much different than normal life today. In other words, it consists only of a greater percent of believers to unbelievers. It's just the believer-unbeliever ratio changes. Well, the kingdom of God 
as we see it here, consists of good and evil being separated out. And the evil is not just evil in man, but it's evil in nature. Well, how do we know that? Why do we say evil includes both man and nature? Because what happened back here at the fall? At the fall, not only did man fall, but what did God do to the ground under man's feet? He cursed it. So, nature fell as well as man falling. So, if you got that big a fall, you have to have that big a resolution of the problem. So, the nature of the case then concerns what is the kingdom of God. And we said that the, um, the different views, thinking in terms of mortal and immortal, you can diagram it, that in, pre, in the pre-mill position, you have history go on, you have the return of Christ, you have this strange period of a thousand years, and then you have the eternal state. And this strange period of a thousand years is made up of mortal humans, being the chief actors, where under an immortal human leadership, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrected church, the resurrected uh, saints of the church. So you have that kingdom for a thousand years inside mortal history, showing that man even fails in a perfect environment because the demonstration of the thousand years will be you have a perfect government. People can't argue that there's an uh, evil in the government institution because the argument for centuries has been that evil is embedded in human institutions. Therefore, you have to have a revolution to undo the human institutions. Hence, therefore, communism was not just replacing a regime in theory, was not to replace a regime with another regime. Communism's in theory, was to do away with all regimes. It was to be the, the end of institutions because those institutions institutionalized evil. So if you believe that, obviously the communist message has an appeal. It's your diagnosis of what the problem is, where it's located, what is the problem causing it. So... Here, man will live for a thousand years, and at the end of the thousand years, there will be people born who are not saved. So, once again, even though the thousand years starts with all people saved, it winds up with not all people saved, because children will have been born during that process of mortal history. They will not be led to the Lord. They will be in league of unbelief. And when the Lord Jesus Christ allows Satan to walk... Uh, he's released from prison on parole for a little bit here at the end. And it takes him no more than a few weeks to stir up a world revolt against the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it eliminates the argument that could be made in history that if we only had a perfect environment, we would have been cool. If we had a perfect world government, that would have brought in peace. Well, there's the counter-demonstration. Each one of the ages in history refutes an excuse of man. The age of innocence in the garden refutes the idea that if I lived in a perfect environment without any sin whatsoever, then everything would be cool. Well, the garden disproves that. Then we had an age on earth when there was no uh, capital punishment. Uh, people were free to do whatever they wanted to do, and all they had was conscience, no government. 
And so people, the libertarian idea, the anarchist idea, do away with government, that's the problem. Well, the whole antediluvian period was a historical demonstration that man still screwed up even without government. And therefore, we come to the next period in history when God institutes government and he gives the sword of state into the hands from the angels to man and says, now you have a government. Now you, it's up to you to enforce the authority. I'm not doing it. The angels aren't doing it. You're doing it. So you fussed at me. You fussed at the angels. Let's see how you do it. Well, we've seen how we do it. So that knocks out that excuse. So you can look at each one of these ages as a refutation of the excuses of sinful men. So the thousand years has that function also, like the previous ages. Well, then we also said the post-millennial view says that history goes on, and then you'll kind of have a transition into the kingdom. Christ comes back and the eternal state starts, and we go in like that. In this way, the, there's a continuity between now and the kingdom. And we saw historically, what did that do? We said historically in church history, one of the corollaries of that position is that the church gets very involved in social welfare programs and the social gospel movement in the 19th century was based on post-millennialism. That is, that the church, besides evangelizing, ought to go out and Christianize the environment, Christianize the world. And we see how that did. World War I, after... Uh, Verdun and a few other battles when 40,000 to 50,000 men die in a week. You know, we killed 50,000 in Vietnam in seven years. In Verdun and those other battles of World War II, they knocked off that many people in one week. England lost the, their, half their young people in one week, running them in a machine gun fire in World War I. Great demonstration of how man was going to get better and better. Amillennialism says that there really isn't a kingdom and there are two versions of amillennialism. That is, that the kingdom of God is equated with the eternal state, or, in a spiritual way, the kingdom of God is identified as the church. In that case, if the kingdom of God is identified with the church, then it means that the church is one-to-one -one with a kingdom. Now what happens to Israel? What's the connection? What's happened to that connection between the Israel and the kingdom? It's severed. The church has basically replaced Israel. So those are the three views, and tonight we're going to deal with four criteria of, of um, working with that. We've already started working with these four criteria, but I wanted to review, because this will be our last time we're going to go into detail on the issue of the millennium and the three views. Okay? The first, I'm going to do a set of, of four, four, four um, criteria to decide this issue. And we said, ultimately the issue is deciding how you're going to interpret passages like Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, things like, the wolf lies down with the lamb. We had passages about human longevity. Nobody dies except for sin in the millennial kingdom. Um, Extremely long ages. Uh, we have passages that deal with a perfect society. Uh, there's nobody that earns the money and then it's stolen from them and that sort of thing. So you have all those issues. How literal do you interpret those? Well, we said what we have to do is come back to the basic framework. Let's see, test, use, consistency. 
What do we know to be the doctrine of nature? What does the Bible teach about the doctrine of nature? On page 13 and 14, we covered what the Bible teaches about nature. And we said at the bottom of page 13, the last full paragraph, we said that there were zoological changes. Genesis 3.14, Romans 8.20-21. 20 In Genesis 9, we have the, trans, the translation between herbivorous and carnivorous. We have zoological changes, at least with the serpent and presumably with other animal forms. So you have all these changes that occurred once if you interpret Genesis literally. If you interpret Genesis literally. Once you interpret Genesis literally and you acquire this view of nature, then what's the problem with interpreting prophecies that basically argue that the state of the world in the kingdom of God, the thousand-year millennium, what is to say, if this is the church age, this is the return of Christ, this is the thousand years, what is to say that the conditions during that kingdom very much approximate what was going on on earth prior to the, fall, the, the uh, flood? Long ages, so on. There's no philosophic or logical reason for not taking those prophecies literally. If, if you believe in the literal early Genesis. Okay, then on page 14, we started in with a creationist view of man. And if you'll turn to Genesis 1.26 again, man, the human race, is characterized as having a mission under God. The universe is not complete without man. That's a biblical position. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28 is a key controversial text that is vilified by the philosophical leaders of modern ecology. The modern green movement takes verses 26, it's amazing they even read verses 26, 27, 28, but verses 26, 27, 28 are taken by leading thinkers in the ecology movement as proof that Christianity is hostile to the environment. And that therefore, it's Christianity that must yield and be destroyed and eradicated from the planet in order that we can have people who don't think always of dominating nature. Now, can anybody think, this is a, this is a very modern quip. It's been around actually for about 30 years. But... What's wrong with that interpretation? Let's before we go any further. They're reading verses 26, 27, 28. Probably don't read anything else. They just come to verse 26, 27, 28. So immediately, what do you got? Interpretation without context. Now, theologically, what's the context of verses 26, 27, 28? What are you going to say? Their argument is that, see, that's Christianity. There it is. Man is going to go out and crush the environment. Man wrecks the environment. He doesn't have to respect the environment. What's wrong with that reading of 26, 27, 28? What's being left out? God. Who is it that's telling man this? 
And to whom is man responsible? Man is responsible to God. Who is it that made the environment? God made the environment. Did he make it very good? Verse 31 tells us the environment was very good. Well, then God says, in a very good environment, I want you to make it better. I want you to subdue it, not wreck it. We don't wreck God's handiwork. None of that's in here. So the interpretation is far out. To say that wreckage is envisioned in verse 26, 27, 28 is nonsense. That's not part of the verse. That's just taking a word out of context, not paying a dime's worth of attention to what, you know, read, read, slow down and read. So, in 26, 27, 28, the purpose of the human race in the Bible is to rule the earth. Psalm 8, thou hast made them a little lower than the angels. Why? To rule the earth. When you rule the earth, all right? In the immediate context of this part of the Bible, where do you have a simple, common picture of what it means to rule the earth? Genesis 2. What is man doing? The first ruling of man. Two, two, two simple illustrations of how man rules. Number one, what is he t- told to do in the garden? To till it and keep it. So gardening is a form of subduing the earth. This is before thorns and thistles. This is before weeds. But to subdue the earth. What is produced by subduing the earth? Fruit. Food. Beauty. It's man as the decorator. God provides the materials and man provides the decorations and brings them to fruition. The arts. It's not just eating. It's also making the environment attractive. That's not to say that it wasn't attractive in the moral sense. Verse 31, God's perfectly pleased with his work. But remember, the very good of verse 31 includes man subduing the earth. That's what God pleases, because he knows that he's, he's got all the materials here, and he's saying, go for it. Do something with it. And that's very good. Now, what is the second illustration of man subduing the earth that we have in the immediate Genesis chapter 2? Besides gardening, what else did Adam do before Eve came along? Part of finding her. He named the environment. So, that's... That's understanding. That's coming to think God's thoughts after him through living in this world. That's how you come to know God. Adam came to know himself by naming the creatures, didn't he? Because what did he discover in the process of naming them all? That he couldn't have really any fellowship with any of them. There was something missing in his soul. So, that's man subduing the earth and we get technology, art, All the industries, everything comes out of this 26, 27, and 28. This is before the fall. Before the fall. Going back to our chart, we have the subduing given in this period, right here. Not this period, this period. So the subduing is not necessarily talking about sin. It's talking about bringing something to producing something. See, we evangelicals, because rightfully so, we focus so much on the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, salvation, 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 that we tend to get a little fixation about that, forgetting if salvation is all there is, then what do you do for eternity? 
This man's purpose is greater than being saved. Being saved restores him to his original position, which was to subdue. Salvation is a step on the way. Salvation is to enable man to be restored to his original purpose. Now, if man's original purpose is to subdue the earth and bring it to fruition through industry, technology, art, question, was Adam and Eve in resurrection bodies when they were given the command of verse 26, 27, 28, or were they in their mortal natural body? The answer, they were in their mortal natural body. Therefore, verses 26, 27 is is an imperative mood addressed to a mortal person or an immortal person. It's addressed to mortal people. Okay? Now, here's, here's the argument. Remember, we've covered one of our criteria is a doctrine of nature. Now, what we're doing is we're going over and we're going to look at the doctrine of man. Doctrine of nature. Doctrine of man. What view of the kingdom best fits the doctrine of man? What's the, be- what's the ultimate purpose of the human race with respect to the creation? It's to beautify it. It's to utilize it the way it should be utilized. Okay? It is mortal people doing this, not immortal people doing it. All right? If that's the case, then which of the three views has a kingdom of God that accomplishes this? Amillennialism, postmillennialism, or premillennialism? Which of the three views deals with mortal history? Postmillennialism and premillennialism. So you can dispense with amillennialism because they don't have any kingdom inside history to deal with it. So that's eliminated. That doesn't fulfill verses 26, 27, and 28, does it? Is there ever a time when the human race corporately attains the goal of verse 26, 27, 28 on an amillennial basis? No. Because it's not until the eternal state that the kingdom of God can come into fruition. So therefore, that leaves only two views, post-millennialism and premillennialism. Both of them do deal with the kingdom of God inside mortal history, and both of them are seriously concerned with verse 26, 27, 28, of seeing that that comes to fruition. So therefore, now the question is, which one best sees that coming to fruition? If on page 15 of the notes... The difference between the premillennialists and the postmillennialists is one of degree on this point. How far will mankind subdue the earth? The postmillennialist argues that the golden era, which the church is supposed to bring into existence, will, quote, not be essentially different from our own as far as the basic facts of life are concerned, end quote. The postmillennialists, therefore, would see mankind subduing some of its social problems, some technological difficulties, but mankind would not subdue all nature under its feet in the sense that the geophysical environment itself, human longevity, and zoological transformation would be included. The premillennialist, on the other hand, foresees a far greater degree of submission. He sees mankind, through Christ, as subduing the animal realm so effectively that a child will be able to lead a young lion. That's not a figure of speech. That is a literal zoological fact. 
To bring about this degree of subjugation, Christ executes a complex strategy involving hard-to-imagine removal of evil spirits from historical influence, as well as the commingling of resurrected immortal saints with millennial humans yet in unresurrected mortal bodies. The resurrected immortal saint, uh, the precedent, of course, for such commingling of divine and human beings is already established prior to the flood. And it's also after Christ's return. So there's nothing there that breaks biblical precedent. The premillennial view of the kingdom is not changing anything. It's not adding anything. It's not violating any precedent that we've already seen in past history. As a matter of fact, positively, the doctrine of man comes to a historical fulfillment in that man finally does corporately, corporately subdue the earth. Music, art, industry flourishes under the government of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I don't believe from the pictures that you get of the kingdom in the Old Testament that Christ is going to do the art, Christ is going to do the technology, or the church or anything else going to do it. It's going to be the mortal human beings that are the in, still in their natural body. They're the people. That's their moment of history. Christ and the resurrected saints, their job is more of a ruling job, kicking the demons out and letting the environment be conducive to the human race fully functioning. Okay. On page 15, I mention another tool that man will use to subdue that he's been given by God is the tool of language, naming. And in language, you have the figurative and the literal approach. The figurative use of language, what I'm trying to say there, the figurative use of language isn't a weak form of language. The figurative use of language is an excuse that you use whenever you can't use the literal, in the, in the weak sense. The figurative use of language would have been there from the very instant of creation. Because God has created the universe with unseen qualities. Nobody knows what logic looks like. Anybody see a logic walking around? That's a quality. Anybody see a beauty walking around? That's a quality. These are things that you think about in the abstract. They're not things that you can touch, feel, taste, or hear. So, there's always been figurative language. That's not the problem. The problem is this. If you're going to argue that whatever this kingdom is, it's so ethereal that it can only be figuratively spoken of, you've got a problem. Because now you're saying the kingdom of God can't be touched, can't be heard, can't be seen, can only be spoken of in figurative language. What does that do to the fulfillment? How do you get that kind of a, a figurative kingdom fulfilled ever? I mean, it could be happening right here, right? And you can't touch it, can't see it, can't taste it, can't feel it, can't speak literally of it. Why can't it happen right now? Well, obviously, that just doesn't gel well. So, the idea, again, is that language does not require anything other than a simple premillennial position. Finally, on page 16, the answer to nations... Mankind's corporate structure, we mentioned that last time, that is that man is identified not in terms of his political boundaries, but in terms of his genealogy. Racially speaking, everyone in this room tonight 
has a history. You have a genetic history of your father, your mother, their fathers and their mothers, all the way back to whom? Noah and his family. There were genes lost in the flood that had never been recovered. But the only genes that we have available in our pool for the human race are those that happen to survive in the ark. But whatever the people looked like before the flood, there may have been different kind of looking people. But the people that we know all have a genetic history back to one family. And that's the biblical answer to racism. That's the answer. And nobody likes that answer because it requires a belief in a literal scripture. But if you get your head screwed on and people think about that, that resolves the racial issue. That we are not, not groups that evolved in different continents and different places like the 19th century people did and like the Nazis believed. None of that stuff. You don't have polygenetic evolution of the races. One group here, never mixing with this group over here. Baloney. All the races come out of one family. So, when we have prophecy, as I mentioned in this major verse, and God, in Genesis 10.22, identifies Asher with the Assyrians, and he makes a prophecy about Asher in the future, who's he talking about? The people that have the genes of Asher. Can God track them? Sure he can. What are we doing now in crime? With DNA analysis. Aren't we tracking people? What did we just hear about Thomas Jefferson? Aren't we tracking genealogical things by our DNA? Well, if we can do that, how come God can't in his omniscience? Why can't he make a prophecy about Asher? Why can't he make a prophecy about Levi? He knows where the genes are. He knows who got the DNA. And not only that, but I give you the example we've mentioned several times, the tribe of Levi. That Jewish tribe still exists today with their last names. Cohen, Levi, Levine, they're all a tribe of Levi. And that's one that is very clear-cut in their genetic heritage. Finally, we come to a difficult one under the Doctrine of Man, page 16, the last full big paragraph there. This one takes a little thinking about it. So we're going to turn to Genesis 3.15, and we've got to screw on our thinking caps here a moment. What we want to look at is this peculiar feature of the role of man, God's omniscience, and, hu and human history. We're still on the doctrine of man, number two. I'm going to expand this just a bit. At some point in time, God makes a prophecy about another point in time. Call it T1 and T2. Everybody's living at point T1. But God says there's going to come something that happens, T2. The problem is that if you look carefully at prophecies, rarely is the duration between T1 and T2 spelled out. That's usually a question mark. Not usually there. All we have is a sequence of events. Sometimes we have a sequence of events that looks like this. T2, T3, T4, T5. And we don't really know, does T2 come before T5, T5 come before T2, you know, all those problems. We know that there are events out there in the future. Well, let's look at Genesis 3.15 to the first prophecy, the first redemptive prophecy. God says that 
he is going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. And to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain, childbirth, and pain you'll bring forth children, and so forth. Adam believes this, and he calls his wife, verse 20, by the name, the Hebrew name for life. Eve is Chava. That's her name. She's life. And so why does he call his name wife when both of them are going to die? Let's think about that for a minute. Why of all names did he ever name his wife Eve? Well, it must be because he believed that she was going to somehow have this seed that would survive. And that surviving seed of the woman would be the salvation of the human race. So, he must have discussed it with her, and they talked about it, and then they had their first child, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Look at how Eve names her son, and what she says when she goes to name her son. She says, she conceived, she gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man, the translators have a problem with this, because it can be translated, a man-child with the Lord... Or it could be a man-child, the Lord. In other words, she probably knew something about the Incarnation. The point is that she's fixed on her son and identifies Cain as T2. Is she correct? No, she isn't. She's wildly off. What's the problem? Because in order to get to T2, if T2 is the birth of Christ, a lot of stuff had to happen. We've gone patiently for three years on Thursday nights through, you've endured me, for three years going through the Old Testament to get the context for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, all that was necessary. It took century after century after century of working here, working there, refuting this position, refuting this. People say, oh, we could do it by ourselves. Yeah, you can do it by yourself, baloney. And God had to demonstrate that. Oh, if we had a king, then we could do it. All right, have a king. Watch what he does. And he peters out. So there goes, that's another, another great idea goes down the drain. So one great idea after another goes down the drain until finally in the fullness of time, God brings forth his son. The fullness of time doesn't happen for a while. So, here's the conclusion of the matter. When we are at T1 and we have a prophecy about T2, this time interval can stretch. We can call it by various surprise effects. God can inject surprise effects in here that blow this time up and we can have what we call Time stretching. Time stretching not from God's point of view, but from what it appears to look like from man's point of view. All of a sudden it's long. What is the key time stretching illustration we just got through on the re- in the restoration period? It was the uh, by, by Daniel. Remember what he did? He thought the restoration was going to happen when? Seventy years. Seventy years, he gets down on his knees and he prays. Seventieth year, Lord. You know, hey, you know, you told me, seventy years. Well, seventy years, the nation did come back for a partial restoration. But what did the angel, the interpreting angel, tell Daniel? 
he said, there's going to be 70 times 7. 70 weeks, not just 70 years. Seven sevens. So time is stretched out. Now, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to stretch again because when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got the suffering prophecies, you've got the glorious reigning prophecies, and they're all bunched together in the Old Testament. But what do we now know about them? How far apart at least are they? 2,000 years. Time stretching. So again and again you see this time stretching out. Stretching out. What is that? It's to allow room, as I say in the bottom paragraph, page 16, Prophecy becomes complicated with time because history involves men's response to God's grace. There is always room in prophecy for the interplay of true moral choice among men. Man is never programmed by some created cause-effect stimulus response. Unless this fact is recognized, one would be tempted to conclude that prophecy has often contained logical contradictions. Noah preached for men to repent. Had they done so, their action would have made the plans of the ark too small. Think about that for a while. 120 years, Noah's building the ark. 120 years, he's preaching. Well, suppose it was a revival. Now what does he do with the plans for the ark? Well, then, was that invitation legitimate? Yes, it was. Because God had history planned such that that revival wouldn't happen. But nevertheless, Noah had to preach the word of God. Why? To condemn the generation. So they couldn't give some excuse. Well, we just never heard. Well, yes, you did hear. Heard a lot. Heard repetitively. Jesus preached the kingdom only to Jews, Matthew 10. One of those strange verses we're going to see. I didn't come for the Gentiles, Jesus said. I came to preach to the Jews. Jesus probably, if the Jews had believed, would have been kept from dying on the cross. Suppose they accepted Christ. Now what would happen to the cross? So, nevertheless, such biblical prophecies always finally come to pass in a non-contradictory way, though in a manner unvisualized by men at the time the prophecy was announced. And see, this is humbling, because we just love to get all this in a nice box. But if you look at the record, the historical record, prophecy is always fulfilled literally. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. Did Jesus ever go down to Egypt? Yes. Did God call his son out of Egypt, just like he called nation out of Egypt? Yes. Did he fulfill Isaiah 53? Yes. So, the prophecy is always fulfilled literally, but it's always different than what you think it would happen. That's why the last sentence, historical responsibility under God's sovereignty introduces surprise effects that stretch out the original prophetic vision's horizon. Another example of this is 1 Peter 1. Uh, 1. Turn to 1 Peter a moment. Because Peter comments on it. He's having the same problem. First Peter one ten. And he's he's interpreting for us the Old Testament. These are one of those neat little passages in the New Testament that tell you how New Testament apostles interpreted the Old Testament. And it's these little nuggets that you gain really neat insights into the Old Testament from. Verse eleven. 
He's talking about the prophets. Who are the prophets? Guys that wrote the Old Testament, right? Prophets. They added to Moses' law. He says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. So God revealed the message to him, and those guys studied their heads off, trying to figure this out. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. First advent, second advent. We're going to see in the notes tonight, you'll see that I handed out in the New Testament, Jewish rabbis went to the point that the only way they got it together in verse 11 was they said there were two messiahs. One was going to be the son of Joseph, who was going to suffer, and then there would be the son of David, who would reign in glory. So that's how they figured it out. They said, this is, you, know, you can't have this conflict. There's a, there's a logical contradiction here. So you've got to get around it somehow. I don't know what my sweater's causing that or what. Um, and the way they got around it in verse 11 was they went to a two-rabbi, two-messiah theory. But Peter's not mentioning the two-messiah theory. He's just saying that all the guys in the Old Testament had problems here with this. Let me remount this. It drives all of us crazy. Okay. Third point. Oh, vital position. Now, look at the third paragraph on page 17. Conclusion of this, this is the second criterion. When one faces passages like Revelation 19 and 20, which seem to depict Christ's return in complex form, and passages like Matthew 24 and 2 Peter 3 that seem to depict the return in simple form, which one do you allow to control the other? Exactly opposite to the way you usually are taught to interpret Scripture. You let the complicated passage control the interpretation to the simpler one. Why? Because... The complicated one gives you all the elements that you have to have in, in the final fulfillment. So that's the answer to why all millennials like to camp at Matthew 24 and 25 and 2 Peter 3. See, it's a simple thing. All millennials camp on those two. Well, we camp on Revelation 19 and 20. That's a complicated passage. They try to interpret the complicated passage on the basis of the simple one. We turn around, we, we interpret the simple passage on the basis of the complicated one. The more complicated passages contain more information and are nearer to the final fulfillment, and that's why you go with a complicated passage, not a simple one. More information. simple one has less information. Primal is insistent then that Christ's return does not end history, but yet another era of history must pass before the end of history is on sure ground. Now we come to the third criteria. We've dealt with the doctrine of man, the doctrine of nature. Now we're going to deal with the doctrine of the covenants. All during the Old Testament time, the last two or three years, remember I kept emphasizing that when you have a covenant or a contract, it's got to be clear to all the parties of the covenant what are the terms. Why? Why do you have the contract in the first place? To monitor behavior. A contract has to be clearly enough written so it can be verified. Was the contract fulfilled or was it not? So, now we apply it to prophecy. Again, page 17. 
Israel is the only nation in history that claimed to have a written contract with its God. Such contracts rest upon the creation of foundational language and so on, but contracts and treaties need verifiability. The meaning of a contractual terminology cannot be reinterpreted later when things don't appear to be turning out the way the contract originally stated. We have contracts regarding the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing. Now, for the life of me, I have never figured out why this land promise can get so butchered in prophecy. Think of yourself as Abraham who said, God told you, this land, this land, Abraham, where was he standing when he said this land? Palestine. Then the land has to come to the descendants of Abraham. Can't be New York, Brooklyn, Rome, Paris. That wasn't where Abraham was standing. He was standing in Palestine. So where's the kingdom of God going to be centered? In the land. What land? The land of Palestine. But if you're going to make the land the church, everywhere the church is, what does that got to do with Abraham standing in the land of Palestine? You've changed the meaning of the word L-A-N-D. That's not in the original contract, and that's not the way somebody who had that contract in their hand would have interpreted it. See what we're doing? You've got to keep the interpretation of the original people who got the contract, or you've changed things. I mean, it'd be great to change your house contract, your car contract, payments didn't work out. Just change it. Figuratively interpret the contract. Watch how you get away with that one. But yet, theologians get away with it all the time. The amillennialist gets away with this. And yet, the amillennialist buys a car. He doesn't want the bank to interpret his car contract the way he's interpreting the Abrahamic contract. Okay. We have the seed promise through David. What does it say? It says the Messiah has to be the son of David. What do we find the Gospels doing in the front end of all the Gospels? Genealogies. Why is that? to show that Jesus is related to the son of David. Why do they bother with that? Because it says the seed of David. He's got to be Jewish. With all due apologies to the white Aryans. The Messiah is Jewish, not Gentile. The kingdom of God is Jewish. Judaism, Judaism Old Testament Judaism, is the custodian religion of man. It gave us the Bible and gave us the Messiah. And so on. You can go through all of the all the contracts. All right. We come now on page 18 to the fourth thing. So we've looked at the contract issue. Pretty easy to understand that one. Now we come to a more complicated one, and that is the issue of the rejection of Christ, and that leading to the inter-advent age. It's part of this time stretching. Here's the first. And here's the second. Here's the sufferings of Christ, the glory which shall follow. In the Old Testament, those two events were not seen as separate. They were different. And that's why they had two messiahs. But they weren't visualized as happening to the same messiah, distributed over time. So, if you look on page 18, the first paragraph under item 4, the implication of Christ's rejection. The rejection of Christ by God's covenant nation created a very complex situation. No longer was history a straightforward movement into the promised kingdom of God on earth through Israel. Think about it for a minute. What was John the Baptist's testimony to the nation? What did he say? 
before Jesus' ministry got started, he was introduced on stage by a prophet, just like the Old Testament kings, prophet, kingmaker. So the king-making prophet in the New Testament is John. That's why all the Gospels start not with Jesus, but with John. John connects Jesus with Old Testament prophetic line. And John said, what? Repent for what is at hand? The kingdom of God. That means that if the nation had repented, what would have happened? The kingdom of God would have come. So, now, the nation rejected Christ. Now what happens to the kingdom of God that was supposed to come? That's the big $64,000 question. The rejection of Christ introduced a surprise that really wasn't quite foreseen in the Old Testament. Now we've got a big problem here. That's why the disciples didn't get it. You see, I mean, they got it, you know, by Pentecost, but you go through all four Gospels and they just don't get it that... The Messiah's going to have to suffer now. Well, why is the Son of Messiah? Wait a minute. Hold it. The Messiah's supposed to bring in the kingdom here. The Messiah's supposed to be glorious reign. We're supposed to be, you know, cheered in the streets here. This is the Messiah. What's this going to die business? Where does that come from? Because the nation is doing what by halfway through all four Gospels? It's quite evident that they're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, new things are going to happen that weren't foreseen quite as clearly. So, here, now, we are introduced to the inter-Advent age dilemma. What about this age that in the Old Testament wasn't clearly seen? That is the source of the problem. Can the inter-Advent age be identified as the kingdom? Now, think about it. Now, from this perspective, I, I gave you the A-mail, the pre-mail, and we drew the little diagrams. But now think of it this way. If the inter-advent age is new, and as a result of the pulling apart of the first and second advent of Christ, and wasn't seen in the Old Testament, could it possibly be identified with the kingdom of God that was seen in the Old Testament? Not likely. The kingdom of God was clearly seen in the Old Testament. But it's very speculative to now take this inter-advent age that wasn't seen in the Old Testament and claim that this is the kingdom of God. Far better to say, this is a whole new age. And the kingdom of God is yet to come. It's been put off. It's been postponed because of all the upset and turmoil and rejection of Christ and everything else. But it's still scheduled in. It's just that this age in which we live is a new deal. One way to look at it, on page 18 I give you, is the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar had a spring and fall series to it. And in the spring, on the Jewish calendar, still in the Jewish calendar, you have Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost. And in the fall, you have the... Um, Trumpets of the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, isn't it striking that only half the calendar has been fulfilled? And isn't it also striking that it has been fulfilled literally? Exactly to the day Jesus died when? 
on that Passover. Exactly to the day he rose from the dead, the first fruits. And exactly from the day, when did the Holy Spirit come? We Christians, we hear the word Pentecost and we think of it as the coming of the Spirit. But wait a minute. The Jews had Pentecost for centuries before the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's an old, old, old thing in the Jewish calendar. So look at it, folks. This, this was fulfilled literally to the day. Fulfilled literally to the day. Fulfilled literally to the day. And the calendar stops. No more fulfillments. Does that mean the calendar is no good? It's just an artifact left over from the Old Testament. Well, we've got 50% of it. You know, we'll forget the rest of it, just debris. Or, is this Old Testament, Old Testament calendar, is this going to be fulfilled exactly to the day in the future in a literal way? The Feast of Tabernacles was the picture of the coming of the kingdom in the Old Testament. They got together in their tents and it was to celebrate the fact that Yahweh would now begin His reign. So this tells us that in the fall cycle, this has to be fulfilled. That has to be fulfilled. It's not, we're not saying this is the rapture here. That's not, a, that's not anchored to any time. But these three days surely are anchored in time. And it would suggest the millennial will happen in the autumn of one year. It will suggest that the Lord Jesus Christ will be recognized by the nation Israel someday on the, exactly the day of Yom Kippur. They will suddenly have the veil taken from their eyes and they will confess that the Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they will mourn and they will go through Isaiah 53 and they will confess their sins. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Atoning for the fact that they rejected history. What did we do in history? We were so wrong, so, so wrong to turn our backs on the Messiah. And when that has happened, then Jesus says, when you say, happy is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of Jehovah, then I'll come back. And what is the next event on the calendar? But the beginning of the kingdom of God. So the Jewish calendar suggests, in the very structure of it, that this will take place in a little straightforward way. Down at the bottom of page 18, we say, the separation of Christ's career into two parts with an intervening age in between, stretches out the simple prophecies of his coming. When Daniel's initial interpretation of Jeremiah's 70 year was stretched to 77s, an intervening age of Israel's partial restoration came into view. Was ever such a partial restoration seen in the Old Testament prior to Daniel 9? Not at all. A new age, a new stretched out period came into existence. A partial restoration? I thought we were going to have a full restoration. Partial restoration? Yeah, partial restoration. Something new. This was not seen in the pre-exilic period of the Old Testament. It was a surprise effect under God's sovereignty. While eternally part of God's perfectly rational plan for history, it didn't exist within creation until a decree of Persian authorities to build Jerusalem. In analogous fashion, the rejection of Christ creates a new age previously unforeseen by men of prophecy. So, we come down to the time that we're now to begin to start talking about Jesus Christ. And in the notes, I want you to notice for next time, we're going to try a little different approach. So far throughout the Old Testament, what have we done? We've gone from one event to the next in historical sequence. And what have we done every time we parked on an event? We, we clustered a doctrine 
that can be seen in that event. Remember, doctrine of creation, the fall, we clustered evil. When we call, call of Abraham, what were the doctrines? Remember? Election, faith. So we always link doctrines to events. What I want you to observe, we're going to shift gears just a little bit when we come in the New Testament. Because I want to dramatize for you that the New Testament is not new. And here's how we're going to do it. When we get into the life of Christ, we're not going to learn any new doctrines. Because what we're going to do is show that all the doctrines are already there in the Old Testament. What we are going to do is we're going to start studying what people do with Jesus. Rather than the, what the doctrine is revealed in the event. There's doctrines to associate with the event. We're going to deal with four events. The birth of the Messiah, the life of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the Messiah. Those events will give us plenty to contemplate. But there's going to be a new motif introduced. Man is not going to question God. Well, you show me who you are, Jesus. I'm going to turn it 180 degrees around. Instead, I'm going to say, it is not Jesus that is on trial here. It is men who is on trial. Men do with him, how they do with him, reveals more about the men than they do about Jesus. If Jesus is a light, come into the darkness, and men say that they can't see the light, is that the light bulb's fault or a pair of eyeballs' fault? That's the, that's the picture we're going to handle with Christ. Christ is going to condemn the world because the world knew him not. And the con condemnation is that here is God walking around on his own planet, and men turn their back upon him. So what is revealed is the glory of God, but what is also revealed is the depravity of man. The absolute, utter, unexcusable depravity and unbelief of men. So, that will be the theme we're going to deal with, and since it is around coming toward Christmas, it's appropriate. We'll, we'll deal with the birth of Christ and all that goes with that, although I doubt we're going to get anywhere halfway through it by, by Christmas. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the Scriptures, for the preservation of the Old Testament, that two-thirds of this canon was a lead-up, a ramping up to the coming of Christ. And we pray that we can now move into this next page of your history and truly appreciate, as we might not have beforehand, who the person of Christ is and what we can observe carefully by observing him within the categories of thought of the Old Testament. And we thank you now through his name. Amen. We won't drag it on here tonight, but uh, do we have any, any questions now? Is a good time to kind of summarize everything we've talked about retrospective to the Old Testament because uh, next week we're going to start getting into the new. So, Debbie, you're going to start. <laughs> You said they were in a, in a mortal state. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wondered how you came to that conclusion if that was before the fall. I guess oh, okay. Uh, what I meant... Yeah, what I meant was mortal as an adversative to resurrection. 
they were in, I wasn't thinking of the fall, I was just thinking of the fact that they had, maybe what I should have said was they uh, had a body that um, was uh, subject to mortality if they fell. It was a natural body like ours. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like resurrection because once you're in the resurrected body, there's no change of state. And I think that, that's a critical observation of what the garden was like. Okay, well, um, if there are no other questions, we call it quits.